Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 30, Letter to My Unborn. Today I'll be joined by Scott Klusendorf from Life Training Institute to talk about abortion and the art of pro-life persuasion. But first, I got some feedback from a dear friend of mine who shares my beliefs about tongues, but who thinks that some Pentecostals and Charismatics might be so turned off by the title of last episode that they may not even give the material serious consideration. If you'll recall, episode 29 with Mike Abendroth from No Compromise Radio was on the topic of tongues, and I had called it blah blah which may seem like I'm making fun of certain understandings of tongues. Um, for those of you who might have felt offended or insulted, I sincerely apologize for hurting you, and I hope that you'll forgive me. But please do let me explain why I chose the title so that you can be sure that my intent wasn't to insult. In 1 Corinthians 14.11, Paul says the gift of tongues shouldn't be exercised in the congregation, most certainly without an interpreter, because to the one who can't understand the tongue, the speaker will be like a barbarian. Now that word is the Greek barbaros, which refers to one whose speech sounds like bar, 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 just, you know, repeating syllables. The Pentecostal idea of the gift of tongues, since it's a heavenly prayer language understood only by God, angels, and those with the gift of interpretation, certainly sounds similar to that, to many of us, like blah, blah. Hence the title of the episode. Furthermore, as, as Mike and I talked about in that episode, studies have shown that the Pentecostal practice of glossolalia is fundamentally not language. That is, putting aside whether or not it can be understood, it does not bear the hallmarks of language. Additionally, Pentecostals from around the world all use syllables and sounds from their own native languages to speak what they believe is this one heavenly prayer language adding evidence to the position that it is not a genuine language. And for all these reasons, and because I happen to like Lady Sovereign, the artist whose song served as the title song for that episode, and because maybe I do like to be a little controversial, um, those are the reasons I chose the title I did. It, it probably would have been wise to have chosen a less inflammatory title, um, but I honestly didn't intend to make fun of or hurt or insult anybody, and if that's you, again, I would just ask you would please forgive me. Now, I've gotten a few more emails since last episode, which I've really enjoyed. Uh, a fellow blogger named Ivan and I have been debating the nature of Jesus' resurrection body. Listener Pete and I are still debating Calvinism in a friendly fashion. And a listener named Steve wrote me with some suggestions for schools to look into, since I mentioned in a previous episode that I've been feeling very convicted to begin working toward getting a master's degree in theology. I want to extend a special thanks to Steve for the advice he's given me. I was feeling really lost. I, in fact, I still am. But th his email sort of fanned the flame of my interest and gave me some ideas to begin running with. And I feel like now I have a better idea of what it will take to begin my education. You see, I have nothing more than a high school diploma. I'm 31 years old with a wife and three kids and a full-time career. So not only is the whole idea of getting a graduate degree daunting <laughs> in terms of time and money... Uh, but on top of that, until I received Steve's email, I felt completely lost, not even sure to where, where, where I would begin. 
now, fortunately, I'm beginning to formulate some ideas and, uh, you know, the picture's becoming a little clearer. I'm, I'm beginning to see the dream become realistic. So I want to thank you, Steve. And if any of you other listeners have any suggestions for schools, keeping in mind that I want something accredited and respectable, but which offers degrees via distance learning, uh, I'd appreciate your advice. Now, next up in my promo rotation was going to be The Whole Truth Podcast, which you can check out at thewholetruthpodcast.com. But it's been quite a while since John and John published their last episode, and I'm not certain when, if at all, new episodes will be released. So I'll keep that promo in my rotation for the future. But for now, I'm going to skip it and play a promo I put together for Matt Slick's Faith and Reason radio show. There is a God. You are not him. Welcome to Faith and Reason, the apologetics, Christian-based apologetics show, where we answer difficult questions about Christianity. We expose the errors of such things as atheism, Roman Catholicism, evolution, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, Christian science, New Age, Islam, and various other religious and secular systems. Why? Because Jesus alone is the way to truth and life, and if you don't receive him as your Savior, you're lost and you're in trouble on the Day of Judgment. After I got Steve's email, I called into Faith and Reason, and Matt gave me some good advice, too, when it comes to getting a degree. You can check out Matt's ministry at www.carm.org, that's C-A-R-M, which stands for the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. Faith and Reason airs live every weekday on AM 790 in Boise, Idaho, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Time. And if you go to karm.org and click on radio, you can find the link to the podcast where you can listen to past episodes. I definitely suggest you check his show out, um, if for no other reason than its entertainment value. And with that, let's move into today's interview. All my little girls, to the Lord I'm eternal, rest in the peace, peace, take care of all my seeds and my own born child. I'm joined today by my guest Scott Klusendorf, founder and president of Life Training Institute, to discuss abortion and how to persuasively communicate the pro-life message. Thanks so much for joining me today, Scott. Good to be with you, Chris. Now, before we get started, I asked Amy and Melinda over at STR to give me some dirt on you, and Melinda told me something I've got to ask you about. She said that you don't spend a dime more than you have to on yourself, and that you, quote, drive the worst cars. So can you tell us, what, what do you drive? <laughs> well, it's true that uh, ever since my 1969 Mustang got hit and wrecked when I was uh, 28 years old, a car, by the way, that was completely cherried out and just immaculate. Mm. Ever since then, I really haven't cared that much about what my wheels look like. Mm. So Melinda thinks that my cars are ugly, but uh, I would just say that they're modest. <laughs> okay, fair enough. All right. Well, so I'd like to begin by asking you about uh, your testimony, as I like doing with all my guests. Have you pretty much always identified yourself as a Christian, or, do you, or did you come to Christ later in life? What, what's your story there? Well, I'm a Mormon. You didn't know that? <laughs> no, no, I'm yeah. kidding. Uh, actually, my story is that in high school, I uh, was found by Christ and heard the gospel preach, uh, preached at an Adventist school, believe it or not. Wow. And it was in that setting that uh, I responded to the hound of heaven, and uh, here I am. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good. When it, when it comes to the issue of bioethics and abortion specifically, what, what led to your interest there? How is it that you developed such a passion in this area? Chris, I'd always been pro-life, but I wasn't doing all that much about it. And then in 
1990, I went to a gathering for pastors that was supposed to contain, oh, I don't know, uh, almost a hundred of us that were allegedly going to show up. And as it turned out, only four other pastors that I could account for showed up. And even though the crowd was under ten people, the speaker, thankfully, was very persuasive, and he gave one of the most intelligent defenses of the pro-life view I'd ever heard. And again, keep in mind, I'd always been pro-life, but was not all that impressed with individual pro-lifers that I had met. Hmm. Well, this guy was different. He had been in the Reagan administration as a Justice Department official. He had been uh, in the Department of Education under Bill Bennett, and he had been a member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives where he had written the bill there that cut off tax funding for abortion. And the guy that was speaking, Greg Cunningham of the Center for Bioethical Reform, laid out a case for the pro-life view that was very impressive. But what really got me, Chris, is he showed an eight-minute video depicting abortion. And when I saw it, that really impacted me in a way that, that no speech had ever impacted me before. And I, it wasn't long afterward. I think it was uh, about six to seven months later. Uh, here I was beginning a career as a full-time uh, pro-life uh, apologist. Wow. Yeah, I can imagine how moving that video would have been. Um, but in, in, so in 2004, you started the Life Training Institute. Can you tell Correct. me how? Can you tell me how that happened? And what's the mission there at LTI? I had been with Stand to Reason, Greg Kokel and uh, Melinda Penner and, and Amy Hall and company, those people who you go to to get dirt on me. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I had worked with them for seven years and just a terrific organization, by far the best general evangelical reformed Christian apologetics organization out there. Uh, there's none better. What I was finding, though, is that in working with pro-lifers and trying to teach them pro-life apologetics – I needed to come in with a little broader agenda, meaning I needed to come in less on the reformed apologetic side and more on the bioethics side. And so I started Life Training Institute so that I could be a little broader in my impact without sacrificing what I hold to theologically, which clearly is the reformed theological view, and using that broader platform to equip as many pro-lifers as I could to make a persuasive defense for the pro-life view where they live, work, and worship. Good. Yeah. Well, I'm going to give, uh, I'm going to have you give the link to that at the end of the interview so that my sure. uh, listeners can check it out. Now, about a year and a half ago, I think you wrote a book entitled The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. Tell us about why you wrote the book and, and how it goes about equipping us as Christians to engage the culture on the topic of abortion. What I tried to do, Chris, is take the really good, cogent, pro-life arg arguments we have out there that have been put forward by leading philosophers like J.P. Moreland, Robert George, uh, George, Frank Beckwith, Patrick Lee, and others, and make those arguments understandable to lay people who maybe don't have time to go read a philosophical paper, who maybe don't have time to read the, quote, smart guys. <laughs> and I wanted to make the smart guys understandable to the lay people. So basically, I wrote a book that was going to function as a translating device that would be somewhere between Francis Beckwith's outstanding book, Defending Life, and Randy Alcorn's more pedestrian book entitled Pro-Life Answers for Pro-Choice Questions. Both of those books are very valuable and, and serve a good purpose, but I wanted something that could be used in a graduate-level symposium but also be read, to someone, be read by someone who maybe was just a high school graduate. Mm. So that's what I was aiming for, and it's not a book 
written to secularists, although it deals with questions secularists raise. It, it's written for Christians. Here's how you make your case graciously and yet incisively in the public square in a way that can persuade people who don't necessarily hold our biblical worldview. Yeah. Well, I definitely recommend my, check, my listeners check that book out. And with that introduction out of the way, um, before we get into what you think is the persuasive case for life, I'm going to be completely honest in saying that I would like to elicit an emotional reaction in my listeners to sort of supplement the case that we're going to be making. And in order to do that, what I want to first talk about, if you if you can, is, is the present legal landscape when it comes to abortion, as I think that there are some misconceptions out there. I, I, there's a person I care deeply about, for example, um, who is under the impression that abortion is illegal in the third trimester, but my understanding is that that's not exactly the, the case. So... If you could take a few moments to describe for us this legal landscape here in America and abroad, and at what ages can women easily get abortions, under what conditions, what stages of uh, uh, the unborn child's development, that kind of stuff? Well, here in a nutshell is what the law of the land is. Abortion can be restricted in the third trimester if and only if if those restrictions do not interfere with a woman's, quote, health, unquote, the Supreme Court in Roe versus Wade and then in its companion case, Doe versus Bolton, went on to define health so broadly you can drive a Mack truck through it. It means <laughs> family health, it means social health, it means financial health, uh, psychological health. And, and what it boils down to is there is virtually no reason that can be given that would obstruct that woman getting that, quote, health, unquote, related uh, abortion if her physician determines she needs it. And it is, by the way, the doctor willing to perform the abortion that is the one who makes that determining decision, which means we've got the fox guarding the chicken coop. Mm. There have been subsequent Supreme Court cases like the Casey decision in 1992 that modified Roe, but not in a way that substantially changes the legality of abortion through all nine months of pregnancy at a practical level. Okay. Now, what about in uh, Canada and Europe and places like that? Is it any more difficult to get an abortion in those places? Canada is as pervasive in its abortion view, uh, in, in its uh, abortion uh, legislation as ours. And there, like here, the courts essentially set the policy. And that was done in 1998, excuse me, 1988, with the infamous Morgenthaler decision that ruled that a child in the womb has absolutely no right to life until it is completely out of the womb. The difference between the Canadian system and the American one is simply this. The American courts co-opted the issue from the legislative and executive branches and basically told the elected branches of government, you have no say in this. The federal courts by themselves will, will determine abortion policy. In Canada, it's a little bit different. What happened there was the courts jumped in and set a policy but left open the door for Parliament to come back and legislate on the issue. Mm -hmm. But to this date, Parliament has done no such thing, and so the court decision in the Morgenthaler matter stands. So, so if I understand it, it's, it's really not difficult at all to get an abortion at virtually any gestational age. Would you say that's about accurate? I wouldn't argue that it's not difficult. I would say it's legal to get one when push comes to shove because okay. that health definition is so broad. 
uh, that you're going to find that no court is going to interfere with a third trimester abortion request if someone can say it's in the woman's health to have this abortion. Right. What I would say is that there are fewer and fewer doctors who want to perform those late-term abortions, but they are available if you look hard enough. In fact, if you open your Yellow Pages phone book, you will usually find, if you live anywhere near a major metropolitan area, third trimester abortions being advertised in the phone book. So it's not that they're impossible to find, but I will say that at a practical uh, level, they're not as easy to find as first trimester abortions. Sure. Yeah, I understand. Well, so can you tell us then a little bit about the stages of development that an unborn child goes through? I mean, we, we've talked about the third trimester and how it may be a little bit more difficult to get an abortion at that period of time. But even in the second and first, you know, how, how early on does, or does the baby begin to develop recognizably human traits, things like circulating blood or a beating heart, a spine, limbs, all these different kinds of things? Well, I'll answer that question, but Chris, I, I'm going to take a little detour here and, and issue a qualifier before I do. Okay. Uh, it's important to note that although we're going to talk about fetal development, the pro-life case does not rest on the development of the fetus. It rests on the kind of being it is. Sure. In other words, what kind of thing is it? Uh, the fact that a child in the womb has a heartbeat or is able to move at a certain point has no bearing on its status. But it does help to discuss fetal development to at least at an intuitional level help people get a sense of that, hey, we are dealing with someone that is one of us, not mm. some other kind of thing. Right. So with that qualifier, we know that we can measure fetal heartbeat as early as three to five weeks. We are aware that there can be fetal brain waves uh, in the first trimester, and those can be measured on an electroencephalogram. We do not know exactly when the fetus can feel pain. That is difficult to, to know for certain. We know that certain receptors are in place that would indicate it's possible. They can feel pain as early as the second trimester, but, but I don't want to say that definitively. That's still very much up for grabs. Uh, we certainly know that children suck their thumbs in the womb. Uh, we know that they move around. So there are certainly indications of the child in the womb being one of us long before birth. Yeah, and, you know, it wasn't, I agree with you. The case isn't going to depend on that, uh, doesn't depend on this, and we're going to get to that in a second. But what I want to do is, like I said, I want to elicit an emotional reaction to buttress our case. Right. And, 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 and so with, th- with that in mind and with all how early on the baby is clearly a human baby, this is where I want the heartstrings to start to get tugged a bit. So can you tell us how various kinds of abortions at these various stages are performed? You've got, uh, this is abortion video at your website, which I encourage right. my listeners to watch if they have a, you know, strong stomach. It's really graphic, but because mine is an audio podcast, I can't show pictures or video, uh, to my listeners. Right. So can you describe for us, uh, what abortion procedures look sure. like? Sure. Well, in the first trimester, the most common abortion procedure is what's known as suction aspiration abortion, which a powerful vacuum tube is inserted through the cervix and the, uh, fetus is sucked out, literally torn apart through the vacuuming procedure, uh, and that's your typical first trimester abortion. The vast majority will be done that way if they're not done through what is known as medical abortion, meaning a chemical abortion like RU486 or methotrexate. Um, in the second trimester, you have to rely on dismemberment abortion techniques such as 
D&E abortion where the fetus will be dismembered piecemeal and the parts of the fetus will then be reassembled on the table to make sure that all of it has been removed so that nothing is left that would trigger an infection. In the third trimester, you're primarily going to be dealing with premature delivery techniques, uh, hysterotomy, or you're dealing with uh, some kind of prostaglandin abortion that would induce early-term delivery. Uh, sometimes the fetus is killed prior to that with a direct injection of poison to the fetal heart, uh, thus guaranteeing there's no live birth. The problem as we have seen in the news recently with the terrible news that came out of Philadelphia with this late-term abortionist who was killing babies after they were born, the problem for every abortionist is he does not want a live birth. That presents a terrible dilemma for him. And so to ensure that doesn't happen, Dr. Warren Hearn and others who have written abortion textbooks use dismemberment techniques to make sure that we don't get a live birth. Wow. That's really horrible. <clears throat> yeah, it's it's almost hard for me to keep going. Um, w- one final question before we get into the case, uh, the pro-life case. Can you give us some statistics when it comes to the frequency with which these various kinds of abortions are performed? I mean, how often do we find unborn killed in these various ways? You do need to keep in mind that when it comes to reporting abortion data, it's explicitly voluntary. Clinics do not have to report if they don't want to. So the data we have is that which has voluntarily been reported, and that's what the CDC uses to compile its statistics. So the statistics are always going to be uh, not entirely accurate. If anything, they're going to be understated because the reporting requirements are volitional. Yeah. Uh, here's what we know. It's roughly 1.2 to 1.3 million abortions annually performed. The vast majority of those, according to Planned Parenthood, are done for socioeconomic reasons, meaning reasons that have to do with the woman's social status, not her medical necessity needs, not anything to do with rape and incest, life or health of the mother. They're, they're done because the woman does not wish to be pregnant. Hmm. That does not come from pro-life sources. That comes from the Guttmacher Institute, which was previously the research arm of Planned Parenthood and is still an abortion advocacy organization. In terms of what percentage of abortions are done when in the pregnancy, the vast majority are first trimester, roughly 89% to 90%. But you still have 10% coming after the second trimester. And those would involve the dismemberment techniques like DNA that we mentioned a moment ago. And lest we think that's a small number, yeah. 10% of 1.2 million is not a small number. No. So this is not something we should just flinch at and say, well, it's really no big deal. We're only call, you know, we're only dealing here with 120,000 a year. What's the, what's the big problem? Well, can you imagine 120,000 toddlers being killed somewhere and we just say, well, it's no big deal. It's not 1.2 million. Well, of course it's a big deal. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and in fact, that's going to lead us into what you just mentioned about the toddlers is going to lead us into the beginning of the case that you make. Um, you know, I, I hope my listeners are, are as emotionally affected as I am by the gravity of the situation. We're talking about 1.2 million at minimum, as you said, uh, people, human beings, or at least as you and I would argue, being killed every single year. Now, 
In an article at your website called How to Defend Your Pro-Life Views in Five Minutes or Less, you say that the first step is to clarify the issue by focusing in on one vital question. What is that question and why is clarifying the issue so helpful and important? That that question, Chris, is what is the unborn? The entire debate comes down to that question. I surprise people when I speak in secular forums and I say, I want to make something very clear. I agree that abortion should remain legal through all nine months of pregnancy. I agree there should be no restrictions on it based on anything if, if what? Well, if the unborn are not human beings, and if it can be demonstrated using science to show us that the unborn are not members of the human family and philosophy to show us that even if they are, we have no duty to value them, I'll concede this debate. I mean, you you and I are both very pro-choice, Chris, when it comes to women choosing their own husbands, choosing their own careers, choosing the cars they want to drive, the the pets they want to own. Uh, we don't have any issue with being pro-choice on those kinds of questions, but if we're talking about killing a defenseless human being, that's another matter altogether different. So we've got to answer the question, what is the unborn, before we answer the question, can we have a choice to kill the unborn? No one, for example, is going to argue you should be allowed to kill a toddler in the name of choice and who decides, or in the name of trusting women to make their own personal decisions. They only argue that way with the unborn because they assume ahead of time, without argument, that the unborn are not members of the human family. But that's begging the question, as Francis Beckwith points out. It's assuming the very point they're trying to prove. And we as pro-lifers have to make sure people understand the question, what is the unborn, has to be dealt with before we deal with the question, can we kill the unborn? Yeah. In fact, I don't know if this was you or Greg on on his um, radio show uh, gave an analogy. You know, if you're a parent uh, washing dishes at the sink and that's Greg. Yeah. Do you want to f- finish the, the analogy that I'm giving? Do you remember? Oh, sure. Why yeah. not? I might as well jump in and interrupt. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, no, you're right. That is Greg Kokel's analogy, and it's perfect. And what he says is, imagine you're a parent, you're at your kitchen sink washing dishes, and your five-year-old boy comes in behind you with your back turned and says, Daddy or Mommy, can I kill this? Well, the first question you're going to have as a parent is, what has he got? You know, cockroach, snail, all right, son, have fun, don't show mom. Neighbor, kitty, whoa. And, of course, if it is his brother by the neck, then, you know, you have even bigger issues to deal with. But my point is you would never, as a concerned parent, say, sure, go ahead, son, until you knew what he had in his hand. And Greg's point with that illustration, which I think is just perfect, is that you can't answer The pro-choice question, can I kill this, until you answer the question, what is it? And what people who support abortion rights tend to do is ignore that question altogether and just jump to the answer why, of course, we can kill it without ever saying what it is. I'll I'll give you an example. At the 1994, uh, I'm sorry, at the 2004 Democrat convention, Ron Reagan, son of former President Ronald Wilson Reagan, gave a keynote address where he was making a pitch for federal funding of embryonic stem cell research. This is where we take human embryos, grow them to about the 14-day stage, and then kill them to extract their cells so we can use them to treat disease and others, allegedly. And Ron Reagan basically made this kind of statement. He said there are people, and I'm paraphrasing him here, there are people who are well-intentioned, who because of their theological beliefs do not think this research should go forward. 
Those people are entitled to their beliefs, but we should not let the theology of the few get in the way of cures for the many. This research benefits us. Hmm. Now, here's the interesting thing. He never persuasively dealt with the question, are the unborn one of us? Right. He just assumed they weren't. Uh, <laughs> President Obama did the same thing. He jumped on this and said, we should not let ideology get in the way of science. Well, wait a minute. Would he argue that way if we were talking about killing two-year-olds? Right. No. He only does that with human embryos because he assumes ahead of time they're not members of the human family like us. But that's precisely the question that needs to be answered. Yeah, I agree. And, and, you know, a question just came to my mind, so it's, it's not in, in what I've got prepared, but, uh, what would you, what you've described are people like Ron Reagan and, and like President Obama who seem to treat it as though the default position is that it is not, uh, a human and then, and somehow might expect, uh, uh, or require that the case be made by people like you and I, which we're about to do, but, but, but they, they would require that the case be persuasively made to overturn what seems to be to them the default position. Do you think that that is sensible? Do you think it makes sense to have the default position be where we assume it's not a human child? Oh, not at all. Any more than it's the proper default position to assume God doesn't exist and put the entire burden of proof on a theist to prove that he does. Uh, the claim the embryo is not a human being is just as much a claim to know something as saying it is a human being. Right. So both sides are going to shoulder the burden of proof in the course of a discussion, and that burden will shift back and forth as various claims are made, but in no way do our opponents have an entitlement to win by default? Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Uh, now, you mentioned uh, theology and, and God, and, uh, you know, what I want to do because we're Christians is before we get into the uh, the more philosophical and scientific case that we're going to make, um, you and I look to the Bible as our authority, and for those who listen who also do that, how would you summarize the biblical case? I mean, how, how does the Bible answer this fundamental question, and what do you think that that says about abortion? Chris, I take a little different view on making a biblical case for the pro-life view than many of my colleagues. I don't run to Psalm 139 to make that case. And the reason is secular critics and even liberal critics of Scripture can point to Psalm 139 and say, okay, fine, that's real nice poetry, but you're going to build a doctrine on that? And I think they have a point because there are things in Psalm 139 we clearly wouldn't take literal. For example, David having communion with God at the bottom of the sea, uh, that's meant to teach something less than a literal truth. What he's trying to say is, look, God is everywhere and I can enjoy communion with him. But we don't say, oh, we can just all go swimming to the bottom of the ocean and have church there. <laughs> yeah. So we, need, we do need to be careful with that. So here's what I would do. I argue that Scripture is very clear in both the Old and New Testaments that human beings have value because they bear the image of their maker. Genesis 1 teaches that. James chapter 3 teaches that. There's Old and New Covenant right there. We also know from Scripture that because humans bear the image of God, the shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden. Exodus 23.9 is one passage in the Old Testament that teaches that. Matthew 5.21 is another in the New that teaches that. So again, we've got Old and New Covenant there. Mm. From that, then, comes only one question we need to resolve. Are the unborn human beings? Because if they are, 
the passages in Scripture that foreclose on shedding innocent blood would apply to the unborn as they would any of us. And the facts of science, as we'll get to shortly, make clear that from the earliest stages of development, the unborn are indeed one of us, which means the commands in Scripture that forbid the shedding of innocent blood apply to the unborn just like they do you and I. Now, that's a very clear, direct way to make our case. I know that there will be critics who say, but wait a minute, the word abortion isn't specifically mentioned in the Bible, and nowhere in the Bible does it expressly teach that the unborn are human. I'm going to grant both those. I think they're debatable, but I'm going to grant them for the sake of discussion. Let's say it's true that the word abortion does not appear. The question I have then for abortion choice critics is this. Are you suggesting that whatever the Bible does not expressly condemn, it condones? Mm. For example, does the Bible expressly condemn using your neighbor for shark bait? No, (laughs) but it does say you're not to kill without justification. And from that, we can easily draw the inference that we should not use our our neighbor for shark bait. Um, Even on the question of the humanity of the unborn, let's say the scriptures don't single out the unborn as being human. Here's my question. Do the scriptures single out the French as being human? Uh, some of your listeners are going, well, I don't know about that one. Uh, yeah, right. Do they, do they single out the Germans or Americans or Canadians as being human? And the answer is no. What scripture does say is that all humans bear the image of their maker and thus have value. So all we need to know is, are the unborn human beings? And the science of embryology establishes that they are. Therefore, the commands against the shedding of innocent blood apply to them as they do anyone else. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And, and so let's move into this um, scientific and uh, philosophical case um, that the unborn is a, is a human being. In your in step two of that five minute defense that I mentioned in, the, in a previous question, um, uh, you lay this this case out. Can you lay that for us out now? Well, in in summary, uh, we can do this in a sentence, which is good for your listeners to know. You don't have to have a master's degree or a doctorate degree in medicine or science or biology. All you need to know is that from the earliest stages of development, meaning from the very beginning, the unborn are distinct, living, and whole human beings. Sure, they have yet to mature like you and me, but they are One of us, the kind of thing they are, is a member of the human family. You can't see this right now, Chris, because obviously we're not uh, on camera with each other, but I'm plucking cells off the back of my hand. Um, These cells that I'm plucking off the back of my hand, I just sent a couple uh, hundred of them hurling to their deaths on my lap in front of me. (laughs) These cells contain my DNA encoding. But you don't think that I just committed mass murder, and the reason is you know that these cells are merely part of a larger human organism, me. They are not distinct, whole living things the way you were when you were an embryo, the way I was when I was an embryo. In other words, there's a difference in kind between each of our bodily cells and the embryonic human beings we once were. That's what the science of embryology teaches us. And if I may just expand on that a little bit, There's a reason why I think that's difficult for people to grasp. It shouldn't be difficult. It seems very straightforward. But people do seem to have trouble grasping that. And one of the reasons is they wrongly confuse development 
with construction. And this is a point that philosopher Richard Stith makes. And what Richard Stith points out is, is that if you look at something like a car that's constructed, it's put together piece by piece with an outside builder. Hmm. No one, for example, is going to think that you have a Corvette, uh, when you weld the first two metal plates together. Uh, obviously, you don't have a Corvette. You've got two metal plates that may become a Corvette over time as other things are added to them, but it's clearly not a Corvette at this point. But Richard Stith makes a very good distinction. He says embryos do something that no constructed thing like a car has ever done. Embryos develop themselves from within, right. and this entails continuity of being. That is a key point, and most people tend to think of embryos as being constructed part by part from the outside rather than correctly viewing them as something that develops itself from within. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, um, one of the, one of the things that I've always found persuasive for, for several years now, uh, and that you lay out as part of this case is, is a, um, is an acronym, a four letter acronym that, that helps bolster what you just said or, or helps, um, uh, establish it further. Can you, can you explain that for my listeners? Sure. Uh, science establishes the kind of thing that the unborn is, a member of the human family. But science cannot tell us how to treat the unborn because science can't tell us how we ought to treat anyone. Science can't tell me that it's wrong for me to kill you after beating your children. Mm. What science can tell me is what kind of thing you are and what kind of thing your kids are, assuming you have them. And what what I would say is that pro-lifers cannot rely on science alone. We also need philosophy or metaphysics to help us out. And that doesn't need to freak us out. That doesn't need to cause us to start short-circuiting intellectually. Oh, no, we got to talk about <laughs> philosophy. That's deep. Right. No, all you need to do is demonstrate that philosophically speaking, there's only four differences between the embryo you once were and the adult you are today. And as Stephen Schwartz points out, using that acronym SLED, not one of those four differences justifies killing you at that earlier stage of development. In other words, yes, you were smaller, you were less developed, you were in a different environment, you were more dependent, but none of those things are good reasons for saying you had no right to life then, but you do now. And, and Schwartz uses this acronym SLED, which stands for size, level of development, environment, meaning where we're located, and degree of dependency, to demonstrate that none of those differences are essential in the way that abortion advocates need them to be to justify killing human embryos. And I'll walk you through them real quick. Sure. Size, there's your S in that SLED acronym. There's no doubt you were smaller as an embryo than you are today, but since when, as a matter of principle, does body size determine the value that you have? Men are generally larger than women, but we don't think men deserve a greater right to life than women simply because they tend to be larger. <laughs> Shaquille O'Neal, who plays basketball now with the Boston Celtics, is seven foot two. He is a foot taller than every one of us that's listening, more than likely. 
he's a foot taller than me for sure, more than <laughs> yeah. a foot. But it doesn't follow he has a greater right to life simply because he's bigger. By the way, just because the Lakers got, or just because the Celtics got him does not mean they're going to beat the Lakers this year in the finals. <laughs> so your listeners just need to get over that. Mm. Um, it's going to be a three-peat for the Lakers, and uh, that is not a preference claim. That's a truth claim, and you just need to latch on to that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, body size Lakers, cannot determine one's value what about your level of development there's no doubt that you were less developed as an embryo than you are today but we don't think that two-year-old girls who lack a functioning reproductive system are less human and valuable than a 16 year old girl who does have that system in place we don't think for example uh, as i told a group of teenagers not long ago in a large school assembly i was speaking at we don't think that teenagers are less human than their parents simply because they're not as developed in fact i told those students listening to me i said you're less developed than your parents physically and you're less developed than your parents intellectually which came as a complete shock to all of them <laughs> yeah. but the truth is you don't reach your intellectual peak till your mid 40s does it follow your parents have a greater right to life than you do simply because they're more developed. Well, they, as a course, shot that idea down, as you might imagine. Sure. Size, level of development. What about environment, where you're located? You were in the womb, now you're out. But how does where you are determine what you are? I walked into my office downstairs to have this Skype interview with you. I changed location. In <laughs> fact, I had been in my car. I'd been out driving, uh, coming back from running an errand. And I changed location, but I didn't stop being me because I changed where I was at. If that's true, how does a journey of eight inches down the birth canal suddenly change the kind of thing the unborn is from non-human, non-valuable thing we can kill to valuable human one that we can't? And the answer is, if you weren't already human and valuable, you're not going to get there just by changing your address. And finally, degree of dependency, yes, I depended on my mother. Yes, you depended on your mother when you were in the womb and when I was in the womb. But since when does dependency on another human being mean we can kill you? Conjoined twins depend on each other's bodily systems, and unless they are threatening each other with uh, life-threatening uh, issues, physicians don't consider for a moment killing one or both of them uh, simply because they share bodily organs. Right. Size, level of development, environment, degree of dependency, those are the only four differences, and not one of those four differences justifies killing you at that earlier stage of development. Yeah, that's that's really great. I've, I found that argument powerful, and to be quite frank, nobody that supports any level of um, choice when it comes to abortion has been able to give me a uh, an answer to that. It's almost like they, I don't know if it's that they don't understand it or what, but anyway. Well, um, they will. I will find that people will keep reasserting things like, well, how can you say that the, the fetus is one of us and how can it have a right to life when it's not self-aware? But notice what they're doing at that point, Chris, and this is important for your listeners to keep in mind. They're merely asserting a view. Yeah. They haven't argued for why self-awareness is decisive rather than, say, having a belly button that points out rather than in. Right. Instead, all they've done is make a raw assertion. Well, that's not an argument. An argument has to be supported with reasons. Sure. And it's not enough to simply say, well, the unborn aren't self-aware. Okay, why does self-awareness matter in the first place? By the way, if self-awareness is decisive, we can kill newborns because they're not self-aware until several weeks after birth, a point that Peter Singer makes. Mm. So we've got to be very, very clear that it's not enough to simply assert 
that the unborn are human because of X, you've got to argue why X is decisive. Right. And, and just to be clear, uh, every X in the example that you just gave, including the example that you just gave of self-awareness, will fall into one of those four categories of differences that we've talked about. Self-awareness is just one kind of development. So, Correct. yeah. Well, so, okay. So, so the case is that for scientific and philosophical reasons, we know that the unborn child is a, is a member of the human, human family whose rights ought to be protected just like anybody else's. Now, critics of the pro-life position will object for various other reasons without asking, you know, about self-awareness or things. They'll ask, uh, what about women who become pregnant as a result of rape or incest? Or what about children who would be born with birth defects? Uh, one, one statement that I've often heard is the unborn is only a potential human being. Now, in the, th- the third step in your five-minute defense we've been talking about is to challenge your listeners to be intellectually honest when it comes to dealing with these kinds of objections. How do we do that? Well, notice again that every one of those objections assumes the unborn are not members of the human family. It hasn't been demonstrated that they're not. It's just assumed. For example, let's take birth defects. Uh, the child has developmental disabilities. Suppose I had a two-year-old in front of me who had Down syndrome. Would we slit his throat simply because he can't function at the level you and I can? Of course not. Obviously not. So the only way you can argue you can kill a fetus who has Down syndrome uh, but not the toddler who has Down syndrome, is if you assume that the fetus, unlike the toddler, is not one of us. But that's a point that needs to be argued. You yeah. can't just assume that the unborn in this case is not one of us. Uh, let's take the rape issue. That, too, assumes the unborn are not human. And here's how I know that. You can simply ask the person who brings up rape. And by the way, it's usually always framed this way. Well, you pro-lifers aren't very sensitive because don't you realize that woman who's been raped is always going to remember what she went through every time she looks at this kid, and you're going to force her every time she looks at this kid to have a painful memory. All right, I think we should grant that that's possible. She may indeed have a painful memory. Sure. Um, I don't think it does any good for us to say, oh, no, once she has the kid, everything will be fine. No, let's grant that it will be painful. I'll bite the bullet there. Here's my question. How should a civil society treat innocent human beings that remind us of a painful event? Mm. Is it okay to kill them so we can feel better? In other words, does hardship justify homicide? Can I kill you if it makes my day go better? Uh, That's the issue. Suppose I had a two-year-old in front of me and his father was a rapist. Would it be okay to kill the two-year-old if it made the mother who was the victim of that rape feel better? Hmm. No one is going to say, sure, go ahead and have at it. Well, why not? Yeah. Well, because he's a human being. Ah, then if the unborn are human, like that toddler, should we be killing the unborn because they remind us of something painful any more than we'd kill a toddler? And, of course, critics are quick to say, oh, but that's different. The unborn aren't human. The toddler is. Ah, that's the issue. Yeah. Are the unborn human like that toddler? You've got to answer the question, what is the unborn, before you answer the question, can I kill the unborn? Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as far as the potential human being, you know, in addition to everything you've just said being applicable there, I liked what you had to say in a debate that I heard you have with with a couple of people where you said it's it's true that uh, that the unborn child is a potential adult, but a potential oak tree is still an oak. Uh, do, yeah. you remember, do you remember making that argument? 
Yeah, I sort of do. I think that might have been the debate I did up in Canada against two rather spirited abortion choice advocates, <laughs> if I remember correctly. And uh, yeah, that that's true. People love to say, well, the unborn is no more a human being than an acorn is an oak tree. Well, the truth is the acorn is an oak. It's not an oak tree, but it's still an oak in the same way the embryo is not an adult, but it is a human being. Right, the exactly. kind of thing it is is not going to have any change to its substantial nature. The only way it's going to change is in its degree of development. The kind of thing it is is there all along. Yep. Yep. Now, I'm not sure that I've ever heard a pro-cho- uh, pro-choice advocate make the argument that I'm about to make, but I'm going to try to play the devil's advocate a little bit. And what if I granted your case that the unborn child is every bit of hu- member of human family and um, – you know, deserving of rights. But then what if I said that it's kind of like a parasite or an intruder? Uh, here in Washington State, um, uh, the victim of a break-in has the right to use deadly force against an intruder. Shouldn't a woman have the right to terminate another human being intruding her body, so to speak? Well, let's take the parasite example. Um, it doesn't work right off the bat because parasites are a different species than the host. Mm. So the example is wrong-headed from the beginning. But let's take what I think is the argument you're getting at here. Let's, in fact, I'm going to just make it tougher. I'm going to make the objection <laughs> even tougher than Good. you made it, if that's, that's okay. Sure. Um, Let's grant that the unborn are human, and here I'm following the example of Judith Jarvis Thompson and to some degree David Boonin uh, and even uh, Eileen McDonough. Um, let's grant that the unborn are human. Let's further grant that they have a right to life. And uh, let's ask this question. Is a woman, a mother, forced should she be forced to use her body to sustain the life of another human being if she wishes to withhold that support? Mm. And Judith Jarvis Thompson uh, famously spun an analogy to help us see this. She said, imagine you wake up one morning and you are surgically attached to a violinist who needs your kidney to survive. And as you are waking up, the president of the Society of Music Lovers and the hospital chief of staff appear at your bedside and say, look, uh, we're sorry that you are hooked up here, but uh, this guy needs your your kidney for nine months, and he has a right to life, and so you're just going to have to put up with this, after which you may unplug yourself and go on, but you can't unplug yourself till then because... Uh, after all, he's a human being with a right to life. Thompson then says this. She said it would certainly be nice if you allowed yourself to remain hooked up to that violinist, but must you? Now, I, I'm going to tell you, and this may surprise you, it may surprise your listeners, if that doesn't throw you back a little bit and cause you to go, whoa, wait a minute, uh, I don't know that you fully followed what she's saying that yeah. that's a pretty good sucker punch to our gut it is someone, yeah. <laughs> who, someone who looks you in the eye and says i'm going to grant your premise and still refute your argument uh that is the scariest type of person to debate yeah <laughs> now i do not think this case succeeds and here here is the question we need to ask do the parallels work In other words, is being surgically hooked up to this stranger violinist parallel to a mother being hooked up to her own child such that we can say, we'll grant, that you may 
disconnect yourself from the violinist, and in the same way, you may also disconnect yourself from your own child. In other words, is a mother's duty to her own child no different than her duty to a total stranger that is unnaturally hooked up to her? That's the question. Okay, And I happen to think that that's the soft underbelly of this argument. The parallels don't work. First of all, uh, we may not have an obligation to sustain strangers who are unnaturally plugged into us, but we certainly do have a duty to sustain our own offspring. Mm. Uh, Stephen Schwartz puts it real well. He says the very thing that makes it possible to say that the person in bed with a violinist has no duty to sustain him, namely that he's a stranger unnaturally hooked up to him, is precisely what is absent in the case of the mother and her child. Greg Kokel, who we talked about earlier, asked a great question. He said, what if the mother woke up to find herself surgically connected to her own child? What kind of mother is going to willingly cut the life support off of her two-year-old in a situation like that? Sure. Uh, second, the child is not an intruder. He's precisely where he naturally belongs at this stage in mm. his development. If the child doesn't belong in the mother's womb, where does he belong? Uh, and the truth is, uh, uh, Thompson, Boonin, and others never tell us where the child does belong. Mm. I think Schwartz is right. He says, look, that a mother looks on her own child as a burglar or an intruder is already an evil, even if she refrains from killing him. Yeah. Uh, boy, I, I couldn't agree more. But, but I think there's a third issue here. Thompson and others try to justify abortion is merely the withholding of support. But it's way more than that. It's also killing a child through dismemberment, poison, or crushing. Uh, let's assume that Thompson is right, that we may withhold support from the violinist. That doesn't mean we can slit his throat. Yeah. Uh, and, and unfortunately, abortion is much more than withholding support. Frank Beckwith puts it real well. He says, you know, calling uh, abortion merely the withholding of support is kind of like suffocating someone with a pillow and calling it the withdrawing of oxygen. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, there's a whole lot more going on here than merely with withholding support. And I think also we can say that, uh, and this is where Thompson's argument has been roundly criticized in the philosophical literature. Other than in the case of rape, a woman really can't claim that she bears no responsibility for the, the pregnancy in the same way that she would bear no responsibility for awakening and finding herself surgically connected to a violinist against her will. I mean, merely going to bed at night does not naturally cause anyone to wake up attached to a total stranger. Right. Uh, but when a couple engages in sexual intercourse, they're engaging in an activity that naturally leads to the formation of a child. So the parallel between the woman who finds herself plugged into the violinist and the mother plugged into her own child really don't work. Yeah. No, it's definitely very clear once, cause you're, you're right. When you, when you mentioned this, it, it took me aback a little bit. I'm like, wow, how am I going to respond to that? But I think that you're, right. you did a great job of showing how w w once you demonstrate that the parallels just aren't there, it's no longer a legitimate challenge. And, and I would just point out that, you know, even, even in the, the, the third issue about, um, not, uh, it's just a withholding of support. No, there's a reason why mothers would, would be charged with, uh, with a crime if they withheld food from their toddlers and the toddlers died. You know, so oh, yeah. even even if we were to characterize it that way, I still think that there'd be a um, a crime there. You well, know? and and we might say, okay, uh, 
Thompson, you've made a great case for child abandonment. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, how applaudable is that? But I do think there's one additional problem with this whole bodily rights argument, uh, and it came up in a debate I did in 2006 where I was actually debating a doctor who performs abortion. She was arguing uh, more or less throughout the debate that a woman had an absolute right to bodily autonomy. So during cross-examination, I put a question to her that my friend Dr. Rich Papard uh, came up with, and it's a brilliant question, and, and here's how it goes. I said to her, let's say that a woman has intractable nausea and vomiting, and she wants you as her physician to give her something to help her with the morning sickness that is plaguing her pregnancy. She's pregnant, and she's got this horrible case of morning sickness. She wants you to write a prescription for thalidomide, which will immediately begin reducing the symptoms of morning sickness, reduce the nausea. But, of course, there is a problem with that drug in that women who take it and are pregnant give birth to children with no limbs. Wow. Will you write that prescription for her? Yeah. And... She said, well, no, uh, absolutely not. I said, okay, what if she goes to another doctor who is willing to do it and then several months later gives birth to a kid with no arms? Do you think this woman did anything wrong? After all, the fetus is an uninvited guest and has no right to life, even if it is a human being, as you have argued, right? And she said, no, the woman who does that would be wrong. So I replied, well, wait a minute. So if the mother harms her unborn child with thalidomide, that's wrong. But if she kills it with electric, elective abortion, that's okay. <laughs> but, but who are you to say that? Because if the mother's right to bodily autonomy is absolute, it's none of our business what she does with the fetus, right? Like it or not, Dr. Williams, who I was debating, can't have it both ways. Yeah. If bodily rights reign supreme, no limits on abortion are acceptable, period. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really good. Um, with, with all of this that we've been, with all this that we've said though, uh, it, are there any circumstances under which you think, um, abortion would be legitimate? Well, I certainly do think there are times when it is ethically permissible to end a pregnancy. Uh, one, the most common, uh, and this would very, I should say, very few cases where it's ethically permissible, but here's one where it clearly is, uh, would be ectopic pregnancy, where the embryo implants on the inner wall of the fallopian tube instead of the uterine wall. Well, in that narrow tube, as the embryo grows, it's going to rupture that tube, causing the mother to hemorrhage and die, and of course, the embryo will die, the human embryo will die, because it cannot live on its own apart from the mother at that stage. And the Centers for Disease Control are very clear that in the case of ectopic pregnancy, the medical protocols are such that if you do not end the pregnancy, you're going to lose that mother. This is almost 100% fatal. So here's the question for the doctor. We'll say he's a pro-life doctor. Do I do nothing and lose two people, or do I act in such a way that I save one life, even though the unintended and unavoidable result is the death of of the embryo. Right. And the answer is you do the greatest moral good you can given that situation, which is not to let two humans die, but to act in such a way that you save one life, even though the unintended and unavoidable result is the death of the embryo. You act to save the mother's life because that's the greatest moral good you can do in that situation. Now, there have been those who respond by saying, but that's just the same as abortion. You're performing an abortion. We've got to be careful here to separate intent 
from behavior. Morality is not merely about actions. It's about intent and motive. In this case, the physician is not acting to relieve the woman of a pregnancy so she can get on with her social life. <laughs> He's yeah. trying to save her life, but there's an unavoidable result that that he can't get around. He either does nothing and loses two people, or he saves one even though the unintended result is the death of the embryo. And by the way, that embryo can't survive anyway. It's already doomed. Yeah. So what, what's the right thing to do? And the right thing to do is to save the mother's life. Yeah, since you're going to lose both in, in the first case, it becomes an issue not of taking life but saving life. That's correct. Yeah, I agree. Well, I've got just a few more questions for you as, be, as we begin to wrap things up. Um, you know, I, I don't know if it's uh, apathy or political correctness or, or, you know, a desire to not appear culturally insensitive, but many people will claim that they're against abortion personally. They'll say things like, well, you know, I would never have an abortion. They might, they might even find it as repugnant as I think you and I do, but they'll still say they aren't comfortable telling another woman what to do. How would you respond to someone like that? How, how can we overcome this, this apathy or this political correctness and, and these kinds of things? Well, you could do it humorously and say, you know, that's a great point. In fact, I'm personally opposed to spousal abuse, but if you want to beat your wife, it's not my place to impose my moral view on you. Yeah, right. Uh, the problem here is people are confusing the kind of claim the pro-lifer is making. The pro-lifer is not arguing that elective abortion is something distasteful. Mm. Uh, for example, perhaps you would prefer chocolate ice cream over vanilla, and it would be distasteful of me to force you to eat chocolate when you prefer vanilla. What the pro-lifer is arguing is that elective abortion is wrong regardless of likes or dislikes, regardless of one how, of how one might feel about it. It comes down to a question of objective morality. We're making a moral claim that is true for all people in all places, and my believing it so is not what makes it so. These are moral truths that exist independent of my recognizing them or independent of me liking them. Uh, for example, I very much would like to take my father-in-law's Corvette. He's 77 years old, <laughs> and he gets new Corvettes from time to time. He also has two Harleys, and he surfs and skis and rides horses. This is quite an active guy. Uh, I'll be out in California in a few weeks, and I'd love to take the keys to that Corvette and go flying up PCH while he's away skiing in Europe. Uh, but I'm not going to do that because, though I'd like to, morality says right and wrong have to do with what I ought to do in spite of my preferences – not do what I like simply because I want to do it. In the same way, when the pro-lifer claims that elective abortion is wrong, he's making a moral claim, not a claim about likes and dislikes. And when someone says, well, I personally oppose abortion, what they're really saying is, I don't like it. Because they would never say, I personally oppose child abuse, but if you want to rough up your two-year-old, go for it. I won't stop you. They, again, only argue that way because, A, they assume the unborn aren't human, and, B, they misconstrue the kind of claim we're making. Right. Yeah, and, and, and to add to that, I mean, I think it's also an issue of, of legal consistency, you know, for the reasons that you've uh, explained. Um, it's not just that we're saying it's morally wrong uh, universally to take, an un, to, to take a life unjustifiably, but we're also saying that we already have laws in place to prevent that from happening for people that have been born. And so why are we right. not being consistent? So, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and look, if the unborn are human, 
and we do believe they have a right to life. And by the way, if we don't believe that, why are we opposed to abortion in the first place? Mm. Uh, if we do believe they're human beings and we do believe it's wrong to kill human life without justification, why wouldn't we protect the unborn? Yeah. Why wouldn't we? And I've never heard a good answer to that question. Yeah, neither have I. Well, are there any other additional tips, maybe do's and don'ts kinds of things that you might be able to give us very briefly uh, when it comes to being persuasively pro-life? Well, without giving a shameless plug for my book, The Case for Life, <laughs> or a shameless plug for my website, ProLifeTraining.com, I, I really hate it when people come on and shamelessly plug their books like The Case for Life or anything like that. <laughs> um, seriously, I do in the book uh, talk about tactics we can use in engaging people with questions, and I borrow heavily there from Greg Kokel's Columbo tactic, which is just a fabulous way to engage people. And it helps get you out of the hot seat so that you're not always on the defensive when these questions come up. The other thing I think we need to do, Chris, is um, for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, we need to stress the point that what post-abortion men and women need is not an excuse. They need an exchange. They need the righteousness of Christ for their sinfulness. Yeah. And the gospel runs parallel to the whole pro-life issue because the answer for people who have engaged in abortion and have been wounded by their sinfulness, the answer is not to deny what happened. Uh, a pastor who doesn't talk about abortion does not spare people guilt. He spares them healing mm -hmm. because unconfessed sin is keeping them out of full fellowship with Christ. And so what we want to do is say, look, the answer here is not to deny What's going on with abortion? The answer is to talk about it, but then present the gospel as the solution that people need to find the healing that they need. And we all need that gospel. Yeah. And that gospel is great news because it's all about the work of Christ, and it's nothing about our own merits. Uh, the great news of the gospel, of course, is that God the Father will now judge those that are his based on Christ's righteousness, not their own. That's right. Well, that's incredible news for people who've been <laughs> wounded by abortion. Uh, and by the way, people who have sinned by gossiping and lying and putting the self first and wanting to be more important than others, we all need that. Yeah. I'm, for example, overweight because I'm glut. You know, <laughs> I need Christ's forgiveness too. Uh, no, that that's good. Um, well, and, and you know what? I'm sinful because I uh, work out and run, and I'm prideful that I'm not overweight. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> I, I'm not going to publish this episode now because I don't like you because you're not overweight. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. Well, uh, listen, at age 50, it wouldn't take me much to get overweight, and I've had to work at it. So <laughs> I have no bragging rights, believe me. Sure. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, well, that, that's really good. In fact, one of the questions I was going to ask you was just, just what kind of attitude we should have toward, you know, women who, who have, uh, had abortions in their past. And, you know, a lot of women will beat themselves up or become clinically depressed if they become convinced by the case that we've made. But I think that you've really, um, touched on the importance of, of, of recognizing that we, that, that this was a sin, you know, that this was a mistake, because it's then that we'll turn to Christ for healing and for forgiveness. And so I appreciate you sharing that. Now, uh, as, as we bring things to a close, um, one of the things I like to do, I say this every every interview I give, is, is to give my guest an opportunity to leave a, a parting message. Um, what would you most like to see us take away from, from this discussion? That the pro-life message can compete in the marketplace of ideas 
and you can make that case in two minutes or less. I have an article, as you mentioned, about how to do it in five minutes or less. You can actually do it in two if you have to. All you got to do is argue that scientifically the unborn are distinct living and whole human beings, and philosophically there's no difference between the embryo you once were and the adult you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage of development. Differences of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying you had no right to life then and could be killed, but you do have one today and can't be. There's your case and what? That was less than a minute, I think. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> um, quick. Uh, and, and that's what I want people to realize. You don't have to have a, uh, doctorate degree in philosophy, metaphysics, epistemology, or any of those other topics to make a persuasive case that can resonate with people out on the street that you meet. Very good. I appreciate that. Now, I'm going to give you an opportunity to not so shamelessly uh, plug your, your book and your website. Where can my listeners go to get plugged into the Live Training Institute and avail themselves of the various resources, including that book? Well, I would go to ProLifeTraining.com, all one word, ProLifeTraining, no dashes, ProLifeTraining.com. Um, and the book, of course, The Case for Life that I've written is available at Amazon, and uh, that book will walk you through making a systematic defense of the pro-life view. And here's a promise I'll make. If you only read the first chapter, not that you should quit there, but let's <laughs> say you did. If you only read the first chapter, you will know how to make that case. And not many books can promise you that if you read only one chapter, <laughs> you can take away something that important. But I'll make that promise in my book. Uh, I think after you read the first chapter, you will want to read more uh, because it's going to teach you then how to defend that case that you've learned to make. Right. Very good. All right. Well, I definitely recommend my listeners check those out. And I just want to thank you for your, your time today. I really appreciate it, Scott. Hey, I have enjoyed it, and I look forward to, to doing it again sometime. And you're a great interviewer. You ask uh, very thoughtful and substantial questions. Uh, it's not always the case, but, but you definitely hit a home run. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Scott's kind parting words touched my heart. I do hope that the questions I put together and Scott's answers to them have helped you not only to have a greater passion for the unborn, 1.2 million or more of whom are being killed without justification every day, but I hope also that they have helped you to feel more confident that you can persuasively communicate the pro-life message too. So, I hope that you enjoyed the interview and that it's helped you in those ways. Now, I, I finally have reached a point where I don't have any upcoming interviews scheduled, so for the next episode or two, I'll be returning to a format in which I teach by myself, uh, unfortunately for some of you, <laughs> uh, next up on the topic of total depravity and the human condition. However, I was invited by Dr. James White to contact him after his return from the UK to schedule an interview with him to talk about Roman Catholicism. And James Hubner from Real Apologetics has agreed to join me to talk about the inerrancy of scripture. So Lord willing, you can look forward to those episodes after a couple weeks or so. And I hope that you'll join me for these upcoming episodes of the The Apologetics Podcast. Until then...